as the two witnesses, life through death. We're in Revelation chapter 11, and today we'll be looking at the first 14 verses. We are now in deep waters, so we have uh, gotten to that point that everybody kind of wants to get to where all the different, unusual, strange things are going on. So listen carefully. Remember, this is God's Word. Revelation 11, verses 1 through 14. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire." And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this vision of the witness of the church and the persecution of the church overwhelm us as you overwhelmed John. Remind us of what this is all about, for the stakes are high. Lord, help us to see that there is a war and there is a king, and we are on one side or the other. Do this for each of us this morning. In the majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. A daughter uh, complained to her father one day about how hard things had gotten to be in her life. She said, as soon as I solve one problem, another one comes up. I'm tired of struggling. Her father was a chef, and so he took her to the kitchen where he filled three pots with water and placed each on a high fire. And soon the pots came to a boil, and in 
One pot, he placed carrots, and the other eggs, and in the last ground, coffee beans. And he let them sit and boil without saying a word. The daughter impatiently waited, wondering what he was doing, and after a while, he went over and he turned off the burners, and he fished out the carrots and placed them in a bowl, and he fished out the eggs and placed them in a bowl, and he poured the coffee into a bowl. And turning to her, he said, darling, what do you see? She said, carrots, eggs, and coffee. And he brought her closer, and he asked her to feel the carrots. And she did, and she noted that they were soft. And then he asked her to take an egg and break it. And after pulling off the shell, she observed it's now a hard-boiled egg. Finally, he asked her to sip the coffee, and she smiled as she tasted its flavor. And she asked, what does all this mean? And he explained that each of them faced the same adversity, boiling water. But each reacted differently. The carrots went in strong, hard, and unrelenting. But after being subjected to the boiling water, they softened and became weak. The egg was fragile, and its thin outer shell had protected its liquid interior, but after sitting through the boiling water, its inside was hardened. The, coffee, uh, the, the ground coffee beans were unique, however, because by being in the boiling water, they changed the water. And the father then asked his daughter, when adversity strikes, which are you? Because far too many Christians discover that when adversity strikes, they're like carrots or eggs, not coffee. And this results in many Christians and many churches bringing about little or no change uh, in society. Fortunately, this doesn't have to be the case. We can learn from the church here in Revelation chapter 11, a church that faithfully served God in the midst of great adversity. As we look at Revelation 11, we'll be called upon to consider for ourselves, individually and as a church, how we will react, how we will survive, how we will overcome the adversity that will come our way because of our profession of faith in Christ. Will we be the witness for Christ that this chapter describes? So today we're back in Revelation. We're now in the deep waters of chapter 11. And we start by seeing that the church is safe while suffering. The church is safe while suffering. Starting in verses 1 and 2, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. First of all, measuring the temple has nothing to do with determining its size. It's a metaphor for setting an area aside for either preservation or destruction. We find the same metaphor used in the Old Testament prophets, and measuring the temple uh, is used as a metaphor for divine protection in both Ezekiel and Zechariah, two prophets that are very important for the imagery of the book of Revelation. And in the context that uh, we have here, there is a promise of protection for the faithful who are described as the worshipers. The measuring, in other words, is equivalent to the sealing of believers that we saw back in Revelation chapter 7, where we read, 
do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. The believers, no matter what the world does to them, dwell in an invisible sanctuary where God himself is present to protect and keep them. And John is told to measure not only the temple and not only the altar, but the people in it as well, those who worship there. Remember, the New Testament now has redefined the temple, the sanctuary of God, has redefined it as the people of God. We see that throughout the uh, New Testament. You have a few passages there in your outline. 1 Corinthians 3, do you, not, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Ephesians 2, this is the house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle Peter writes, As you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And the identification of the temple of God with the people of God gets even more explicit as we move through Revelation. Uh, in Revelation 13, we're told of the attacks of the beast. And it says about the beast, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So it's directly comparing the dwelling of God with the people of God, those who dwell in heaven. And thus John is to measure God's temple. Its altar, which we saw back in chapter 6, is associated with the suffering church. Remember the martyrs that were under the altar? And the worshipers. So the measure of the temple, the altar, and the worshipers as a sign of the invincibility of Christ's church. Now, as you can imagine, there are many, many different interpretations of the temple and the outer court as they're described here in Revelation 11. And I'm not going to get into all those because it would take a really long time. Except to remind you, we have to be careful to use or to employ the same method of interpretation throughout the book of Revelation. It seems that Revelation takes the references to the temple and altar as references to the church amidst a hostile world. The temple is often used as a metaphor for the church in the New Testament, as we've already seen. The true danger, what God is protecting us from, is spiritual danger, much more so than physical danger. And by measuring the temple, the Lord is guaranteeing the church's protection. Now, that interpretation is further divided when you get to the outer court. Some take that to represent an apostate church which will align itself with the unbelieving world and its persecution of the believing people of God. Others take the outer court as a metaphor for the danger and the trouble and the persecution that the faithful church uh, must suffer in this world. 
So is the outer court about the church being persecuted, or is it about the persecutors who are coming after the church? I'm not sure. In either case, the imagery leads us to believe that the church is going to get persecuted. Whether it's talking about the persecutors or the persecuted, trouble's coming. That part seems clear. But the church will be preserved by God from spiritual or eternal harm. And then we say this is only going to happen for 42 months. Mark that off on our calendar. Everything will get better. Or that could be three and a half years. Or that could be times, times, and half a time. All are used, or 1,260 days, all represent the same period of time. Three and a half years, half of seven years, seven being the complete uh, number, the number of completeness used throughout Revelation, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven seals, seven churches, seven spirits, seven lampstands. We get that over and over again. Seven saying, this is all the churches, uh, this is everything that's going to happen. But here we get three and a half years, alternately described as 42 months or uh, 1,260 days or times, times, and half a time. It all comes from Daniel chapter 7, which was our responsive reading this morning. And it serves as a numeric symbol for a limited period of time. Remember in Revelation, numbers are symbols, not statistics. And it stands for a limited period of time in which evil is allowed free reign and the church is going to suffer tribulation. And the description, uh, using different ways to describe it, is just uh, literary variation. Um, we'll see that come up again in this passage, again in chapter 12, again in chapter 13. All refer to the similar uh, limited contained period of time. And in this limited period of time, the holy city will be exalted, uh, attacked by the unbelieving world. And that's going to be shown to us in great detail in the next two chapters in Revelation 12 and 13. It's going to symbolize the dragon's powerful but frustrated attempt to destroy the church through deception and violence. And so you have um, a comparison here. And a contrast, you have an unmeasured courtyard trampled by the nations balanced with the portrait of the church as a measured sanctuary. Although protected from apostasy and protected from God's wrath and protected from judgment, nevertheless is exposed to spiritual deception and social contempt and physical violence. And the measuring of the sanctuary and the invincibility of the two witnesses, which we're about to get to until their task is done, reaffirms the promise of Revelation 7, that God's people are sealed from judgment. However, the prohibition against measuring the outer court, leaving it uh, vulnerable to the trampling by the nations, and then the beast slaughter of the witnesses, shows that God promises not to spare us from suffering, but rather to secure our faith in the midst of suffering. All this is saying that we may die physically, 
but we're not going to be killed spiritually. Remember, born twice, die once. Born once, die twice, physically and spiritually. And all of that comes to play here in this really difficult chapter. Um, I think I've said that like four times now about Revelation. This is the hardest passage until uh, I get to the next one. Um, but all of that comes to say that we are invincible through defeat. Now that's a paradox. We're invincible through defeat. And of course, that's the story of the Christian life. That's the story of Jesus, right? He was victorious on the cross where he died, which is not how we normally define victory. But that's how it works in the Christian life. Now, again, the interpretation of this passage is controversial. And to help you sort of cut through the thick jumble of interpretation, I'm going to begin by telling you what I think is a fair summary of these verses from verses 3 through 14. The Lord will protect his people as they bear witness to him. That witness inevitably a message of salvation to those who believe and judgment to those who do not provokes the opposition of the unbelieving world. That opposition in turn leads to the apparent defeat of the church, but in fact the Lord will reward his faithful people with final and total victory. In other words, what we have in these verses is another version of the main message of the book. Trouble and tribulation await the church, but so does eventual triumph. The Lord will preserve his faithful people to ensure their vindication at the end, and this passage is a summons to remain faithful and bearing witness to the world no matter what opposition it has to endure. You got it. Amen. Give the benediction. Let's go home. Not so fast. We need to take this apart a little bit so that we can understand it better. And we're going to start with the witnesses. Verses 3 through 6. I'm going to look at these witnesses. He writes, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Over a hundred years ago, the great Anglican uh, scholar and hymn writer, uh, Henry Alford, he wrote that uh, no solution has ever been given to the prophecy of the two witnesses. He's referring to the fact that even the most reliable scholars of Revelation can't seem to agree if we have uh, a prophecy of two actual individuals who will appear at the end of history or a metaphor for the church as a whole and her work of bearing witness in the world. In my view, uh, all the scholarship, uh, particularly in the last century, has demonstrated there's much more to the view that the two witnesses are, in fact, a metaphor for the witnessing church throughout history all the way to the end. It seems to better fit the overall context of Revelation and its many use of metaphors for the church. However, 
Some think the two witnesses are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Notice those, uh, at least the first name, Joshua is a common name, but nobody's choosing Zerubbabel anymore. It's such a shame. It's a great name. Uh, anyways, uh, much of this passage is based on Zechariah chapters 3 and 4, and they're the two main characters in those chapters. And because so much of this language comes out of those chapters, people think, well, it must be those guys, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua. This is not the Joshua who brought down the walls of Jericho. This is Joshua, many, many, many years later, a high priest. Different Joshua. And it appears in the book of uh, Zechariah. Um, and, and that's plausible. Remember, our key to understanding Revelation is the Old Testament. John didn't invent any new images. He just went to the Old Testament and gathered them all up and kind of shoved them together and mixed them around and kind of ran them through a blender and came out with all sorts of strange stuff on the other end. But when we try to understand these images, our best place to go is to see where they're used before, and that's almost always to the Old Testament. So that's one uh, feeling. Others think they're Elijah and Enoch because they didn't die natural deaths. And so supposedly it's easier for them to come back. Um, and there were a few people, this is my favorite, there are a few people who thought they were two 17th century London tailors named John Reeve and Ludwig Muggleton. And this interpretation created a sect known as the Muggletonians, and that sect lasted for 300 years. You can't make this stuff up. You know, it's just too good. It's got the whole Harry Potter ring to it, you know. It's, I never heard that before, you know. That was, But apparently people believed them. They, these two guys said, we're the two witnesses, and everybody said, all right, we're with you. And it's strange sect lasted for a while, so who knows. Many people think they're Moses and Elijah um, for two reasons. And I realized when I talked about this in Sunday school earlier, I forgot to tell everybody the second reason. So I'll tell you that first. They appeared at the transfiguration of Christ. So they're ones who have, in a sense, already come back once. So a lot of people think they're natural. Um, and yet I think these two witnesses are a metaphor for the church and... Uh, there's two of them because there's a biblical requirement that you always have to have two witnesses to bring a charge against someone. We see that in both Old and New Testaments. Deuteronomy, uh, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. That's reaffirmed in the New Testament by Jesus in Matthew 18, in the context of church discipline, he says, but if he does not listen, you know, somebody has offense against you, you go to them and, and, and try to resolve it. And it says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then finally, in 1 Timothy 5, we have do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So I think that's why they're listening to, because you have to have two to bring a charge. 
They're witnessing to Christ against the world, to the world, but also against the world. And they're leveling a charge for those who don't believe. However, the witnesses are clearly modeled after Moses and Elijah. They were two of the greatest, most representative prophets of the Old Testament. And they bring a message of impending judgment and a call to repentance. They wield the power to inflict miraculous signs of judgment after the pattern of Moses who brought plagues upon Egypt, turned the Nile to blood in Exodus, and also uh, on the pattern of Elijah who shut up the sky so it didn't rain in 1 Kings for three and a half years. And the time, as we read here, the ministry of the two witnesses is the same as the time of the church's tribulation. Three and a half years, or 1,260 days. However, when we get to Revelation 12, it's going to get confusing because there we're told that this same time period began with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven. In other words, this limited time period covers the, the, the ministry of the two witnesses, spans the entire length of this age. The persecution of the church expands the entire length of this age from the first coming of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. And I think that, in my view, is a strong argument in favor of taking the two witnesses as a metaphor for the witnessing church rather than a prophecy of two individuals still to come. The church as a whole takes over the task of bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of God, a task that was used primarily, uh, that used to be primarily the responsibility of the prophets and the apostles. Now remember, John the Baptist came, and if you remember in Luke chapter 1, um, he came uh, in the spirit of Elijah. He was not Elijah, but it says he came in the spirit of Elijah. Luke 1, that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And that's very much what's happening here is the people are being prepared through witnessing and through persecution. And the church continues to carry on this prophetic task of these great men. All of her sons and daughters have become prophets in this sense, as Joel prophesied the wood, and as they would, and as Peter said they had on the day of Pentecost. And this is confirmed because then the witnesses are identified uh, with the two lampstands and the two olive trees, representing the church bearing light to the world. If the lampstands symbolize the church in chapter 1, and we're specifically told that they do, it's likely they symbolize the church here in chapter 11. So it's the only other use of lampstand in the book of Revelation. And two lampstands make particular sense, again, as a metaphor for the witnessing church that bears light to the world, because you had to have two witnesses to prove a point and secure a conviction. So two witnesses represent the fact that the church's witness is authoritative and ought to believe, be believed in the world. And then the fact that they're clothed in sackcloth seems to suggest both that the church is calling the world to repentance and that it mourns over the fact that the world largely responds in unbelief and so makes the church's message one of judgment 
rather than salvation. And of course, that always happens. The gospel goes forth. Some people respond, repent, and believe. And for them, it is the message of salvation and life. But others do not respond, refuse to believe, refuse to repent. And for them, it becomes a message of judgment and death. It's the same gospel. The Apostle Paul told us the same thing in 2 Corinthians, that he was a preacher of life and death. He said, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? When people believed, he was a preacher of life. When they refused to believe, his proclamation of the truth of the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ amounts to a ringing of an eternal funeral bell. And of course, here we see the fire coming out of the mouths of the witnesses. The plagues they bring upon the earth are images of divine judgment. If you reject the message, you reject the witness, you reject the church, you reject the gospel, you reject Jesus, there will be judgment. And of course, the olive trees supply the oil that burns in the lamps, and we see them as an image of the Spirit's empowerment of the church. But despite the powerful witness that they have, the church has to the power of God. They're forced to live up to the name witness. See, the word witness is a translation of a Greek word, martis. The content of the witness is their testimony, which is a translation of the Greek word, very similar, martyreia. It's from these Greek words that we get our English word, martyr, which signifies someone who's died for the truth. When we read witness, the actual word written there is martyr. And therefore, a martyr is someone who dies as a witness to the truth. And so here we see that they wind up suffering great persecution, verses 7 through 10. Great persecution comes upon them. It says, when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been, in a torment, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Well, these verses give us an account, again, in highly figurative language, drawn especially from the book of Daniel, as to what's going to occur at the end of history after the time of the church's persecution and their witness to the world. This is the great tribulation, the time of unprecedented woe for the church, a day so terrible that Jesus said they would have to be cut short. In Matthew 24, he said, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
We'll hear more of this beast as we proceed through the book. The great city is Babylon, favorite image in Revelation for the unbelieving world. And he references three other places. Sodom was the city of great sin. Egypt was the place that enslaved uh, the Jews. And he said where the Lord was crucified, which is Jerusalem, which has now been destroyed. And so we see the description of their death here in verse 7. We're going to see the same description when we get to chapter 13. It seems that the two texts concern the same event, the same people. Chapter 13, we see that the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. In both texts, the beast makes war on the saints and conquers them. In both texts, the people of the world support the beast in his aggression against the church. However, the beast's victory cannot be a spiritual or eternal one because God's going to vindicate the witnesses. Remember, we're protected from spiritual death, but we're not protected from physical harm or violence or physical death. So the only way in which the beast can conquer the witnesses is by killing them ending their physical life and silencing their testimony. But the triumph is short-lived because in the next few verses demonstrates, we see a demonstration of the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. Look at verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Remember, Jesus was in the tomb three days. There was an earthquake, so here three and a half days serves figure of speech representing a short period of time when it appears that evil has triumphed but in fact it is not and we read that a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet just like the mighty resurrected army in Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37 and as their oppressors look on in terror the witnesses are summoned by God to enter heaven imitating their Lord's own resurrection and ascension and the final salvation of the church is paralleled by the final judgment of the world. The people who give glory to God as the final judgment falls on the world represent, I think, it's not a last-minute conversion as much as it is a last-minute conversion attempt. Sort of a temporary maneuver employed by those without faith, faith who find themselves face-to-face -face with God's judgment so-called foxhole uh, Christians who never really intends to love and serve the Lord, but are simply crying out in their moment of terror. And the larger context of Revelation seems to support that. And of course, we know Philippians 2 tells us that every tongue uh, will announce that Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow. It doesn't say that every single person will believe that, but they will all acknowledge that. Now, I know it gets really complex here. And the complexities of 
Trying to understand Revelation can just leave your head spinning because they do that to me. And sorting out all the possibilities and trying to choose between them is not a, a simple or easy matter. But leaving all the sort of strange details aside, let's try to look at the big picture. In some ways, cut to the chase. The church bears witness to the world. It communicates by word and deed what it has come to know of God and the way of obtaining eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And the world either accepts or rejects that testimony. And much of the world has rejected it and will reject it. Because human sin carries within itself a principle of rebellion against God, the unbelieving world remains not only unconvinced by the witness of the church, but is offended by it. And no wonder, because the church's witness amounts to a declaration that the world is in unbelief, and its refusal to submit to Christ the King is both evil and foolish. And proud human hearts are rarely willing to take such a verdict lying down. And so the story of this world becomes, in John's account, the story of a church's witness and the world's ferocious counterattack. Now, I don't know how many of you have read much in the way of military history. As an army officer for many years, we were required to do a certain amount of what was called professional reading. And if you've ever read a historical overview of a war, any war, whether it be uh, the Civil War by Bruce Caton or the Civil War, a narrative by Shelby Foote, or you could have read the First World War or the Second World War, both by John Keegan, or Citizen Soldiers or Band of Brothers by Stephen Ambrose, or any other war, Vietnam or 10 to 20 years from now, Iraq and Afghanistan. You will learn that a big picture of a lengthy war has to omit a ton of details by necessity. For example, let's take John Keegan's magnificent history of the Second World War. It's brilliantly written. It's a brilliant account of the progress of the war from beginning to end, a great movement of armies across the landscape of Europe and Asia, the pivotal, uh, pivotal battles, the turning points, the horrific consequences for the people and nations that fought the greatest war in human history. But in telling the whole story, there's so much that Keegan has to leave out. You know, the experience of the individual soldier, his boredom and his terror, his letters home, the heartbreak of loved ones receiving news of a son's death in battle, the civilians who suffer so terribly in a war they didn't decide to fight, the destruction of the hopes of so many people, the millions upon millions of private tragedies, daily heroisms, lives never to be the same again. That, too, is the story of the Second World War. But no one can account for all of that in a single volume. It'd be this wide. It's the same way with the revelation of John. We get the great sweep of history, not its details. We get the progress of the conflict, the great crisis that represent the uh, fatal turning points, and the triumph and catastrophe that mark the end. That's what we get in Revelation. We get the forest, 
not the trees. We don't get the individual story, either that of the Christian or the non-Christian. Revelation is a big picture account of the progress of history. And its interest is large scale, the great issues, not the experience of the individual human being. There is, of course, so much more that could be added to the story of the world. The Bible itself has so much more to say about the experience of the individual and the, the course of a person's life, believer and unbeliever. There's joy and happiness and achievement in life. Christians suffer all kinds of sorrows that are not directly related to uh, the world's rejection of the witness. There's all sorts of other obligations that are laid upon Christians in Scripture other than being a witness to the world. Our Heavenly Father has an interest in developing holiness in, in each of us, in all of us, and he uses many different means to foster that. All that is true. The Bible has a ton to say about all of that. But we have to face the fact that so fundamental to the meaning of life and history is the church is bearing witness to the light of Jesus Christ and the world's rejecting of that light and the opposition between the church and the world that results. John is summarizing all of human history in these terms. This is the story of the world. This is the story of the great struggle that's taking place in human history. This is the story of the church in the world, a story of a faithful witness to the world and of the world's hostility to that witness. The next uh, two and a half chapters, in two weeks we're going to take them all together in one big chunk called the Cosmic Conflict. And we're going to look at this war of course, before we go into it, John's taking a sort of a time out here because he wants us to find ourselves in this story. He expects his readers to have firsthand experience of bearing witness and suffering opposition and to take comfort from being reminded that it's only to be expected and that the Lord Jesus Christ will not fail to vindicate those who faithfully witness to the truth. There is more to our lives than this, sure, but our lives are part of this great story of light and darkness vying for control of the world. And at last, that's the most important thing we can say about our lives, that we find ourselves in one army or the other, that we're belonging to the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness, that we're taking up one side of the struggle or the other. It's the biggest difference between Christians and non-Christians in your neighborhood, in your work, in our society, in our culture, in our day. And I think generally speaking throughout human history, the unbeliever doesn't see his life as part of something larger and more significant. He or she doesn't find the meaning to life in the meaning of history. But this is precisely how a Christian should think about his or her life that our life, our experience are part of something much larger, something much grander, part of a story much bigger than ourselves. And when we live in obedience to the Lord and serve him and serve his kingdom, we are moving history forward to its appointed end. This opened with the opening of a scroll containing God's plan for history, for the victory of his witness church, 
through suffering. And it's been opened by the Lamb, delivered to the Apostle John to be announced for both the comfort and warning of the churches. And despite the rage of its enemies, the church is secure in the presence of its holy champion. And despite its security as a measured sanctuary, the church is vulnerable to the violent aggression of those who hate its testimony about Jesus and seek to silence its call to repentance. And that the last word comes to us with the voice of the seventh trumpet, which will be the next verse we get to. It's where we're going to end today, and it's where we're going to pick up in two weeks. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen, amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing your word to us. We need to understand that you have called us to be your people. You have called us to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. You have given us great and precious promises that when the opposition comes, you will never abandon us or forsake us. Help us to focus even more on our Savior, our champion, and use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you no matter what. In the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.